This morning's reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you and um, ask that you would uh, give us your Holy Spirit uh, to us at this time, that he would uh, illuminate uh, for us your word and all its truth and power and beauty, and help us to see Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm a huge sports guy. Um, ever since I was a little fella, I've always loved playing sports, uh, talking sports, um, watching sports. Uh, if you ever want to lose me in, in conversation, you know, bring up politics or the, the stock market, but, you know, start talking sports and you will have my undivided attention. Um, so my favorite sport to play, at least, has always been basketball. And so back in April of 2003, there was a professional basketball game played between the Portland Trailblazers and the Dallas Mavericks. But it wasn't what happened during the basketball game that was really of any significance, but rather uh, something that took place before the game even started. So uh, a young girl named Natalie Gilbert was uh, voted on by the fans, actually, to uh, sing the national anthem. So she gets up there, and, you know, it, it, it starts. And, and rather early on in the going, only a few lines in, she just freezes. You know, she forgets the words uh, to the national anthem. So... She starts to stumble a little bit. You know, she tries to recover herself. She tries to remember the lyrics. But you know, once she starts to stumble, uh, that was it. You know, she was not going to recover herself. Uh, maybe the, the lights were too bright. Maybe uh, this, you know, the, the crowd was too large. Um, so it was right as this starts to happen, kind of immediately, that uh, the head coach at the time of the Portland Trailblazers, uh, a guy by the name of Maurice Cheeks, comes over to this, this little girl and puts his arm around her, and in what turns out to be a really sweet moment, you know, starts himself to, you know, sing the words of the national anthem. And as he does this, you know, she kind of starts to collect herself, and the words, you know, come back to her a little bit, and they finish the Star Spangled Banner, you know, together. So it's a rather sweet moment. And if you watch the video clip, you know, obviously the, this, this little girl is just in a state of such embarrassment and humiliation. Um, but and I'm sure it was even a little bit more embarrassing that he had to come over and, and help her, you know, you know, do this. But it's obvious that she was, you know, beyond grateful 
uh, for this, this gracious act um, of this head coach for what he does. So in our passage today, while obviously a vastly different setting and, and context and time, uh, there is a similarity in that an individual, Isaiah, finds himself in a, a really most uh, deplorable situation um, that he cannot get himself out of, and it is God who comes to his rescue. So Isaiah was a prophet, um, and the role of a prophet was not a job that uh, applications were submitted for and the most qualified candidate was, was chosen out of a, a pool of, of candidates. Uh, the role of a prophet was a sacred calling by God. Uh, the individual was appointed you know, by God intentionally and specifically. And when we think of prophet, you know, I think automatically we probably think of prophesying, right? You know, in, in the conventional sense of the word, things that prophets do, you know, tell future events. But really it was more than that. And essentially a prophet... Uh, was the Lord's mouthpiece. So a prophet uh, was responsible for uh, you know, taking the words of the Lord you know, from the Lord to the people, delivering the Lord's message. And it wasn't always a favorable message in terms of what the people wanted to hear. You know, oftentimes, prophets had to speak difficult words uh, to the Lord's people. Uh, it was a difficult job. At times, it was a dangerous job. At times, it was also a, a thankless job. But this was Isaiah. So in the first verse, we read about King Uzziah, not to be confused with Isaiah. Um, So what we know of him is that he died in the year 740 B.C., and he reigned for more than 50 years, which is a a, pretty good long time. And as kings went, he was a relatively good king. Uh, He was the king of Judah, but he meets a rather unfortunate end. And 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 21 gives us the account of how King Uzziah came to meet his end Essentially, it was because of his pride. So from that passage, we read that Uzziah enters the temple and seeks to make an unlawful sacrifice, seeking to burn incense, something that was specifically only to be done by the priests. So the king attempts to do this, and Azariah, a lot of names here, uh, the, the high priest stands up to him. He says, Uzziah, you cannot, you must not do this. And not only was Azariah the priest there, but 80 other men, 80 other priests also were standing up to Uzziah, imploring him not to do this. Well, it's at that time that King Uzziah becomes angry. And right then and there, because of his anger, the Lord strikes King Uzziah with leprosy on his forehead. And you can just imagine the situation there. Um, and of course, what we know about leprosy, it's a highly contagious disease. So immediately King Uzziah had to be ushered out of the temple and he was forced to live the rest of his days, uh, in isolation. So a rather, you know, sad end for this King here. So also in the first verse, Isaiah writes that I saw the Lord. So what Isaiah experiences is what's called a theophany, which is a visible manifestation of God. And oftentimes, God's presence is in the form of, of smoke and of fire and of earthquakes, these kind of uh, you know, highly visible, cataclysmic you know, type events. Uh, John Calvin, the pastor, theologian, and reformer, puts it this way, to paraphrase, that when God chooses to show himself to man, he does so in ways that man has the capacity to see. It is like a mirror reflecting the rays of God's glory, so that Isaiah is right to say that he saw the Lord. And even though this is the Old Testament times, 
Isaiah did actually see Jesus. He saw the glory of Christ as attested to uh, in John 12:41 in the New Testament. So Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, uh, the train of the Lord's robe filling the temple. So it's from the throne that the Lord rules both heaven and earth. And the temple that Isaiah sees uh, in this vision is not the earthly one per se in Jerusalem, but rather it is the heavenly temple spoken of in such striking language in Revelation 4, 1 through 8, where there the apostle John himself is experiencing a vision of God's splendor and majesty and rule. The Lord's throne transcends all other thrones, and it is one of glory and beauty. So it is above this throne that Isaiah also observes these seraphim. They had six wings. Uh, With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, their feet. And with two wings, they flew. So seraphim is a, a Hebrew word, which more than likely means burning ones. And there actually have been representations of six-winged angelic creatures that have been found by archaeologists in the Near East. So these seraphim, though they are angelic creatures, still pale in comparison to God's glory. And because of this, they cannot look at him directly. Uh, They do possess a good degree of divine knowledge as angels, yet still they must cover their faces and their feet, which also demonstrates reverence and humility before the Lord. So two of these wings were used for flying. So they were God's ambassadors. Um, They were sent by the Lord to do his bidding, to do his will. And so these, these seraphim, these burning ones, not only obey the Lord's command to go, but they go swiftly. They go gladly uh, to do the Lord's work. So these seraphim are calling out to one another, and the words that they are calling out to each other are, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So it's not a typo there, uh, with holy being written you know, three times um, that somehow have been missed you know, over, over the centuries. Uh, rather, a threefold repetition when we, when we encounter it is the strongest kind of superlative um, that we can find. And repetition in scripture is a, a literary device uh, used to call the strongest attention to what is being said. And Jesus himself you know, used this, this same device in his teaching during her, his earthly ministry when he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, so what he was saying, what Jesus was telling his audience was, you know, listen up, you know, pay attention, uh, pay the strongest attention to what I am about to say uh, to you. R.C. Sproul, uh, one of the most um, renowned theologians of our modern times, in his book, The Holiness of God, you know, writes about this, um, this threefold use of the word holy. And he says that, that nowhere else in scripture is an attribute of God written three times in succession uh, like holiness is here in Isaiah 6. Nothing or no one is as holy as God. Also, the number three denotes perfection, as elsewhere indicated in Scripture. So it's the Lord's holiness that causes us to praise God for his many attributes, and it's appropriate for us to see God's holiness in this way as the sum of his attributes. In other words, God's love is holy love, God's mercy is holy mercy, God's justice is holy justice. 
A.W. Pink, uh, another theologian, writes of God's holiness uh, in his book, The Attributes of God, and he writes, quote, As it seems to challenge an excellency above all his other perfections, so it is the glory of all the rest. As it is the glory of the Godhead, so it is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. As his power is the strength of them, so his holiness is the beauty of them. As all would be weak without almightiness to back them, so all would be uncomely without holiness to adorn them. So Isaiah further paints the picture of this this grand vision that he has in verse 4 by describing the the foundations of the the thresholds, uh, you know, shaking before the voice uh, of the Almighty Lord. So, So even... Uh, the most firmly fixed part of a, a structure, you know, is no match, you know, for the Lord's presence. So at this point in the passage, um, hypothetically say that we did not know how the, the, the rest of the passage would unfold, and, and, and say we had to guess, uh, you know, what Isaiah's reaction would be next. Uh, we, might, we might guess that he would respond with, you know, grand amazement and, and, and wonder, uh, you know, imagine being like at the Grand Canyon or, or someplace with such physical spectacle like that. We, we might guess that he would respond in, in that kind of way. Um, or if we were to place this in our modern times, you know, we might see Isaiah, you know, pulling out his smartphone and, you know, opening up Instagram and, and you know, taking the most uh, amazing photograph uh, in the history of photographs. Um, hashtag no filter. But that's not how, how Isaiah reacts. Uh, in fact, it, it's almost the exact opposite of, of amazement and of wonder. And he, he, he says these words in verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So these are rather curious words that, that Isaiah uses. You know, this expression, woe is me, um, I, I don't know how often we use that word woe today in, uh, in our modern times. And if we do use it, I don't know if we, we really use it in, in a, a kind of a serious way. I think maybe it's more in a lighthearted, you know, jokey uh, kind of way. But he, he says, woe is me. And what he's really saying, what is really going on, is Isaiah is, is so afraid at, at God's holiness, uh, at experiencing it, that he actually pronounces a curse upon himself. Uh, woe is an old Yiddish word, and it has to do with, with curses. And, of course, as a prophet, uh, Isaiah was responsible sometimes for uh, you know, pronouncing curses upon the people for their sin, but, but he actually pronounces a curse upon his own head. And the meaning of the original language is, is literally to become undone, you know, to become unraveled. So he was so utterly terrified at seeing the Lord that he expected to be immediately destroyed, and essentially resembled a dead man before God. So why was this? You know, what was the reason for this that would invoke this kind of reaction from Isaiah? Well, it was because of his own pollution before uh, a holy God. And he says unclean lips, most likely because he was a prophet, because his tongue was really the most valuable part of him, you know, delivering God's message to the people. What also makes this so interesting is considering the man that Isaiah was. You know, he was the prophet after all. You know, this was not some, uh, you know, chronic offender or some moral degenerate, but 
it was Isaiah the prophet, and he was a moral pillar of sorts and uh, an individual who you know, people would look to for, for direction and, and for guidance. And uh, you know, if we were to kind of equate him with someone in our modern day, we might you know, say Billy Graham or the late Mother Teresa, you know, someone that just is so well-respected, um, not only by religious but by non-religious people alike. This is who Isaiah was, and his quote-unquote purity was exposed and revealed to be impure before a holy God. So Isaiah's words also demonstrate his acute awareness uh, that he was a sinner. He recognized that he was really unworthy to utter the name of God with his lips because they were unclean. Furthermore, Isaiah lived among those who were unclean as well. He recognized that. And the disease of sin was hereditary and epidemic. And just as Isaiah or God's people then uh, could not undo the damage and corruption of their sin. Um, just like us today, we cannot undo the damage and corruption of our sin. Uh, I told you I like sports, so um, I was on the ESPN website about a month or so ago, the sports website, and I was reading it was some article about uh, uh, college football coaches and, and, and kind of the way that they, they cover up at times uh, things about their players and 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 things like that. But it was really a sidebar in the article that caught my attention, and it was uh, talking about a former um, National Football League player named Chris Carter who was uh, speaking at this uh, rookie symposium, which basically is a, a collection of the rookies in the National Football League. Each year they kind of have an orientation where former players, former coaches, uh, you know, speak to them about the rigors of playing in the, the National Football League and and give them advice and counsel has a, has a, how to deal with different things. And so Chris Carter, one thing he, he said at this symposium was that he, he told the guys, you know, make sure you select a, a fall guy in case you get into trouble so you can kind of place the, the blame on, on this fall guy. Um, now, once this became public, he was reprimanded, and the, the league said, we don't stand by this kind of this kind of talk, but uh, it just reminded me, uh, you know, the, the propensity for us to so quickly, um, you know, shift blame on other people or to make excuses or kind of to do anything, to look at anyone or anyone else except our own selves, uh, you know, for the sin uh, that is within us. So further in the passage, uh, we read that one of these seraphim flies to Isaiah. Um, so we think, He's in this situation, uh, this terrible situation that he cannot get out of. He just really wants to be, to be dead. Um, but God does not leave him like he is. One of the seraphim flies to Isaiah with a burning coal taken from the altar, touches the mouth of Isaiah, and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So think about the, just the painfully visceral experience it would be you know, for a, a live burning coal to, to, to touch your lips. Um, I remember being in, in middle school in uh, home ec class, which I think was short for home economics. I, that, I think that's right. Uh, I don't know if they still have it today or what they call it today, but we were doing like a, a cooking or a baking unit, and I don't know what we were, what was in the oven, but I went to retrieve the baking sheet from the oven, and I had a pot holder, but, but somehow I didn't grab it right, and the inside of my hand, uh, you know, touched the, the baking sheet, and uh, it gave me a burn. And if you've ever experienced any kind of burn, you, you just know the, the, the pain and the sensation that comes from that. 
And I just remember my hands uh, throbbing you know, for hours and hours, and it was just a, a small little section of my hands. So you can imagine how much more it would be uh, you know, for a live burning coal to touch and, and to singe our lips, you know, one of the most sensitive parts of our bodies. So Isaiah's cleansing was certainly painful, but it was necessary. He had a gaping spiritual wound that nothing could cauterize except for God's remedy. God's mercy removes Isaiah's guilt and corruption. God's grace restores him, and nothing remained to obstruct Isaiah from worshiping God and carrying forth his message. So it was Isaiah and other prophets who foretold of a greater prophet, of a greater priest, of a greater king, who would come ultimately to endure pain and suffering. We can read about this in Isaiah uh, chapter 53. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who experienced his own burning coal. Yet Jesus' suffering was much greater, the physical pain of the cross, but also the unspeakable agony of experiencing separation from God his Father, whom he had always known nothing but boundless love and fellowship. It was Jesus who did not face suffering and death for his own sin and impurity, however. For as scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus suffered and died so that we could be cleansed and forgiven of the guilt and the filth of our own sin. As Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It was Jesus that experienced the burning coal of God's wrath for sin, so that by believing in him, we would not have to receive the punishment that we deserve. And more than that, more than that, we can come before God as children, you know, as, as young children, you know, boldly come to their, their mothers and fathers here on earth and, uh, and ask for all kinds of things. <laughs> then verse 8, after the Lord does this for Isaiah, after he rescues him, the voice of the Lord uh, is heard once more by, uh, by Isaiah, and the Lord asks a question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So Isaiah's response is, here am I, send me. So once again, um, R.C. Sproul, uh, in his book, The Holiness of God, uh, makes a fascinating point about Isaiah's response here. Now, face value, it does not seem that there's anything unique about what Isaiah says. You know, he responds in the affirmative. He responds enthusiastically, willing uh, to do God's work. But Sproul says that really, if you translate uh, the original language, the words literally translate as, here am I, rather than here I am. And Sproul makes the point that if, if it's here I am, really Isaiah is just giving God his, his location, right? As if you know, God needed to know like, where Isaiah was uh, physically. Um, but really by saying, here am I, Isaiah was offering up himself. He, he was giving himself to God, uh, his whole self, willingly to God um, to do the work of the Lord. But we would not be doing full justice uh, to verses 1 through 8 if we did not consider at least what is written in verses 9 through 13. Uh, after all, what was it that the Lord wanted Isaiah to do? Um, why was the Lord sending Isaiah? Well, we read in those verses that the Lord actually wanted to, to send Isaiah to bring words of judgment on the people. So they were not to be words that tickle the people's ears and, and says, you guys are doing great, you know, keep it up. 
Um, but they were actually to be words of judgment. And Isaiah's words would actually harden the people's hearts and would actually deafen their spiritual ears. But even in the midst of all this judgment and, and seeming you know, gloom and doom, there is still a promise in those verses that God would yet preserve a faithful remnant from his nation of Israel and eventually one day would lead to uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah was commanded of God to speak hard words to the people, uh, you know, part of his job, but he was willing nonetheless to, to go and to obey God. So two questions to put forth today. Uh, the first question is, have you become acutely aware of God's holiness and your sinfulness? And have you looked to Jesus and confessed him as your only hope to be rescued from the guilt and filth of your sin? Jesus stands ready to forgive, ready to redeem, ready to make you whole. Uh, listen to the words of John Oswald, who is a professor and commentator uh, with regards to God's holiness. Quote, We have made God our good buddy in the sky, or a blind, half-senile grandfather who says, Oh, that's okay, honey, when we mess up. So much of our worship is ultimately about us and the good feelings we get. As a result, God's grace has become horribly cheapened. It is something he all but owes us, since he knows that basically all of us are pretty good people who just can't help messing up once in a while. How we need a vision of the blazing holiness of God. How we need to be crushed under the awareness of a being who is greater than the entire known universe. How we need to come face to face with a white-hot moral perfection in the presence of which sin cannot even exist. Will boomers and Xers sit still for this? What generation ever has? So rather direct and blunt words um, uh, you know, from that quote there, uh, really far from the everyone gets a trophy kind of way of things. Um, unfortunately, sometimes we take that everyone gets a trophy and, and, and apply it to our relationship to God or, or our standing before God. We think that if we just make a good enough effort or if we just avoid the, the really you know, bad or heinous things, in life, then, then maybe God will just kind of look at the overall body of our work and, uh, and you know, give us favor for that. Well, this really is, is vain human philosophy. It's, it's human convention. It's human thinking. Uh, it's not the message, message of Scripture. Jesus Christ is our only hope to be rescued from our sin and to be made right uh, with God. And then the second question is if you have answered an affirmative uh, to the first, is are we willing to be sent of the Lord as Isaiah was? Uh, sure, we will not have this experience, this incredible vision that, that Isaiah uh, has, but the Lord nonetheless speaks to us you know, through his word, through his son, and commands us to go in his name and to be faithful to speaking the gospel, uh, if, even if it means at the expense of um, you know, material gain or pleasure, or even it means family and friends rejecting us because we have spoken uh, the truth of Jesus uh, lovingly into their lives. Uh, That is the reality. Uh, Friends, may we ever be captured by the holiness of the Lord and look to serve him uh, with gratitude. Let's pray.